0: You're listening to the 21st Folio, a podcast about modern Shakespeare productions of stage and screen. The podcast is a subsidiary of The Seventh Row, an online publication dedicated to interdisciplinary film and theater criticism. You can find us on Twitter at Seventh Row, with the number seven spelled out, or online at seventh-row.com, that's S-E-V-E-N-T-H-row.com.
1: I'd like to talk about, and mostly I want to solicit other people's views on this, because mostly what I have to offer is confusion. <laughs> <laughs> but I wanted to talk about the longer takes in Zeffirelli versus the like really snap, 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 shorter takes in the Lerman version.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: I realized that shorter takes like that are basically a Lerman trademark, as is the yep. sensory overload. But what do people think of how effective those were given the play?
2: You know? They were very effective to have the shorter cuts to add more intensity of the emotions, to give the audience a little bit more of an emotional roller coaster to go on with these teenagers. For me, with the Zeffirelli version, the longer takes were more just. Here's the play. We're going to show it to you. Look how pristine this is. Look how long these takes are. Look how luxurious this film is. Love, long, slow, you know, slow takes. And um, for me, that was a bit more boring. (laughs) It didn't give the audience a lot to grasp onto. uh, And it didn't give the audience enough emotional. uh, It didn't give them an emotional ride like Baz Luhrmann's film does.
0: I mean, I agree with you that Baz Luhrmann's one is, I think, more emotional. I think there are other reasons that I like it also. But one thing I will say for the long takes is I still felt that it really, really moved. And I never found a point in the Zeffirellis really where I was bored and like looking at my watch and wondering when is this scene going to end. And, you know, usually there's a scene like that in most Shakespeare productions or films there's usually one scene where you're like okay how much time is left where when's intermission and I didn't find that in Zeffirelli's I felt like it just moved and moved and moved what I do think that Baz Luhrmann's does really well is not just that the short takes for the sake of it moving but because it allows for more variation in the length of takes and I think what's really important in Romeo and Juliet is the way that time is moves at different speeds for different people um you know that the the young people are in a rush and everything seems so fast and then but then you know their wedding night can seem like forever to them but then also it seems like not enough and i feel like Baz Luhrmann, because of how his default is bam 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 um he can when he does slow it down it's really really meaningful in a way that Zeffirelli's is just sort of long take long take long take and I don't feel like those long takes are necessarily purposeful or useful in a way that, say, I would say that you know Kenneth Branagh's long, long ten minute takes in Much Ado About Nothing are really purposeful because they're in his movie, at least you know it's all about creating this setting of relaxation and luxury, and and things are going on, and isn't it isn't it a lot of fun? And then and then his blocking is really elegant, and I think that Zeffirelli's blocking is pretty good, but I don't know that those long takes are really doing much to serve the text aside from as Laura put it you know basically taking a play and putting it on screen mm-hmm. um which is funny because so apparently Zeffirelli did actually do a production at the Old Vic with Judy Dench in 1960 and it was totally different from his movie
1: oh
0: yeah I think uh, the,
3: the cuts, the, the quick cuts really do give, give a sense of not, not the, that the scene is dragging or that the scene is shorter, but just that, that time, like in universe is, um, is moving really fast and, and not just time, but, but the things are happening really fast. So you get the, like, the brilliant sort of, like, montage style quick cut together sequence after Romeo drives off from his little trailer in Mantua and lots of flashing lights and sirens and, and running around doing strange things with guns that you don't really quite understand, but it's, it's not just that time's moving fast, but that yeah, a lot's happening in a short, short amount of time. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I really, I really like that. It was good. Also just parenthetically when he's driving away from his trailer in Mantua, there's so much dust and it's so orange that I kept expecting yeah. the war
0: rig from Mad Max Fury Road <laughs> to show up. <laughs> <my life. laughs> well, that's the, okay. I, On a sort of related note, um, <laughs> I mean, one thing that I did really like about Baz Luhrmann's is the colors and the way that you get everybody is always sweaty, like Because it does take place in July and there are actual references in the text to the fact that it's, it's you know, it's perfect. hot out. Everybody is sweat. And that that's part of, you know, what's heightening the tension is everybody is hot and and you know, much like um the Spike Lee film, Do the Right Thing, is everything just mounts up because of the heat. So the color in Bad Lerman's film is, you know, there's a lot of reds and yellows and oranges and then there's also the sand of the beach that you do get much like Mad Max, you get this sense of this, you know, this hot mm -hmm. place. And so that, and the mounting tension, and you do actually get to see people sweating. And even like Friar Lawrence, he falls asleep because it's hot Mm -hmm. out. And then, I mean, maybe that's kind of interesting. I hadn't really thought about this before in this context, but I mean, Caitlin was talking about all of the water imagery, and it's kind of interesting that that the the love, which is what slows things down and is, you know, tempers things, that takes place in water. And then... Mm -hmm. The tension takes place, you know, on the sand, like even the the shooting takes place on the sand. And before that, Mercutio was hanging out in the sea.
3: Mm, shooting at the sea, which I kind yeah. like. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to fight the sea, yeah.
1: <laughs> there is also, I mean, picking up on what Caitlin said about water imagery. Uh, it's. I thought it was interesting that both Romeo and Juliet get individual water scenes before they have all of these water scenes together. Because there's that moment at the our first sight of Juliet is with her head underwater, exactly. and her hair floating around her in the bathtub. And Romeo has that moment where he's trying to sober up in the bathtub when he jumps his head into a full sink. And you see him, you see his face in almost exactly the same way that you saw Juliet's. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's an immediate suggestion that both of them are fundamentally different from the environment they live in.
0: Yeah, and it's also kind of a nice foreshadowing because it's it is. What do we say? Not about to be crass.
1: Does <laughs> um, it figure? Does it ironically
0: mirror? Let's <laughs> <laughs> do <could you> <laughs> <laughs> Um <laughs> There's a suggestion of death by water by virtue of the fact that their head is submerged in water. And of course, they both end up being dead. That there's this kind of like it's it's not like their first image in water is them splashing around in the sea. It's their heads submerged.
1: Yes, mm-hmm. seen from below, you can see their faces in the air, bubbling. You know, the water bubbles.
0: You're right. The poisons
2: of love, <laughs> 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 The poisons of love. <laughs> That's all I'm going to say about
3: that. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, one thing we haven't um, talked about is uh, the Lerman death scene that much. We've talked about the Zeffirelli one. But, um, yeah, what do we think about the choice to have Juliet wake up?
1: Now, every time, and I, I'm reiterating what I said before, but every time I watch the Lerman scene, it just hits me right here. It just like, it just, it just contracts your heart, you know, in a way that, again, you know, and I'm not the first person to say this. One of my TAs in university said it too. Like, every time you hope this is going to be the time that she wakes up before Romeo takes the poison, you know? Yes. Yeah. You don't have that sense of deep, completely futile hope. When I see the Zeffirelli version.
0: but does it bother you like, because she does wake up before she takes he takes the poison and she watches him take the poison. she doesn't do anything. She's just like, "Oh cool, he's got a little vial and he's gonna take some potion. Isn't that adorable? Hi, Romeo?" And he's like, "Oh shit, whoops <laughs>
1: the, neither of them understand what's going on, you know they're like, yeah. they're dumb kids, right? Yeah,
0: they're sweet, dumb kids. Well, but Juliet isn't dumb. That's kind of the thing, though. If you have Juliet, wake up when... But she's
1: still, like, 16.
3: And I would also like to... Like, she's just woken up from a, like, 24-hour drugged sleep, so maybe give her a minute. She's (laughs) (laughs) off.
1: Put her a little bit of (laughs) slack. Yeah. (laughs) She She is out of it.
3: I just love that moment where he looks at her and and it's like you can see in his eyes, he's like, oh, no, I messed up. What have I done? Wait, you're alive? Oh, God. And then it's just both of them just freaking out. Yeah, yeah, it's so emotional. (laughs) And I think um, the Zephyr and, well, the play itself, but um, the choice to keep the sort of moment with Fry Lawrence and really separates the two deaths in a way that I think – is remedied really well in the Lerman one that they 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 die so so quickly in succession of each other that it feels like kind of a single almost like a like like a like an actual double suicide purposefully done Mm -hmm. um more than the um Zeferelli one which is just sort of Romeo dies and he's dead for a while and then Juliet kind of just thinks, oh, well, okay, well, okay. I, I should probably die as, as well. Um, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Like, like she, she makes, in, in Lerman's one, she makes that decision in the, the peak horror of the moment of what, having watched Romeo die. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. I think, I mean, that's a really interesting point because I was going to ask what people think about the fact that Juliet shoots herself in the head, um, in the Lerman one instead of stabbing herself with the dagger because, I mean, I guess I just like haven't been around the circuit on Romeo and Juliet, so this was news to me that I that um people think of the stabbing, the fact that she stabs herself as like a final penetration, and that it's like her putting her become her and Romeo like becoming one, and that the it's um and that the that the sword itself is kind of symbolic, whatever. Oh. <laughs> Apparently, that's a thing, which is news to me. Um, oh. so you lose. So you lose that if she shoots herself in the head, but on the other hand, you, what you pointed out, which I think is really interesting, is you actually get that and still, and in some ways, you get that more because you, they purpose they they're killing each other, killing themselves in such quick succession. And one of the other things that I know was like raised in in the art and Shakespeare that I thought was really interesting that I hadn't really thought about was the fact that Romeo kills himself inside the Capulet. Well, I guess you don't have this in the Lerman one because they're just in the church. Mm-hmm. But in the Zeffirelli one, anyway, they're actually in the Capulet tomb. And the fact that Romeo kills himself in the Capulet tomb is his way of sort of becoming a full Capulet, that he doesn't die in in the Montague tomb. He dies in the Capulet tomb. And so that's his sort of like becoming one with Juliet. And the suggestion seem to be that it was actually really quite, you know, kind of feminist and innovative, the idea that. In the end, he is the one who's denying his mm-hmm. his name, and you kind of, I guess, you lose that in the Baz Lerman one because they're just, you know, in a church and on a bed, as opposed to in in the tomb itself. But on the other hand, you get that sense of their deaths being entwined, and that being sort of, I mean, to me, I hadn't really thought about it this way, but in it when I heard it mentioned as they're like like that, I kind of thought of it as being kind of like a dipic story, like the way that they actually finally become one in death and, like, merge, and you sort of get that just because of the quick succession in the Lerman one in a way that you don't in the Zeffirelli one. Actually, I
1: think this is one of the most, this is one of the smartest modern elements of the Lerman version. Like, do you know how long it takes to die from a stomach wound? It's, like <laughs> ever. it's one of the most notorious, painful, and long ways to die. And also, there is a chance, however slender, that given a stomach wound and given the time it takes to die, they can bring you back. Mm -hmm. If you shake yourself in the head, that's like the ultimate serious way to go, because it's instantaneous and you're Uh, done. You're tough.
0: Tekov would argue with you on that one. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Mr. I failed at everything including shooting (laughs)
1: myself in the head (laughs) to fail at suicide is the worst failure
3: (laughs) well actually one thing that uh, does slightly annoy me kind of every single time I watch the Lerman death scene is the fact that the place on Juliet's head where she's pointing the gun means that uh, she looks as if she's pretty much just gonna blow out her optic nerve. Like, she could probably
1: suck <laughs> that. To shoot but, the mouth, which is the most shoot, the most Like mouth. Yeah, not uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's,
3: it's a silly thing to, to worry about, but it's just like, every time I see it, I'm like, no, just move it back a little bit more, cause otherwise you might, like, be, <laughs> especially cause blinded, it's a right. gunshot, someone's probably gonna notice, uh, and, you know, you might just end up blinded, which would be kind of terrible.
0: Um, <laughs> Well, Although yeah. no, I mean, in the Baz Luhrmann one, she could just marry Paul Rudd, who's a sweetie. <laughs> <laughs> he's a
1: yeah. really funny dancer. <laughs>
3: yeah, <laughs> he just—I I, I can't—I can't stand him in that role at all because, which is perfect, because he's meant yeah, to be terrible. Yeah, but he just has the the ultimate perfect, like smug, boring, perfect teeth, trust fund kind of having dude. And it works really well because, I, yeah, I kind of want to punch him every time he's on screen.
0: And that oh, hair, wow. the way it's like puffy at the top. It's, yeah. It's total douchebag hair. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Okay, so I wanted to take this discussion to talk, chance to talk about adaptations of Shakespeare and in particular adaptations of Romeo and Juliet. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the things that I've gotten into fights with people on Twitter about is Like, whether, say, Curzel's Macbeth is actually Shakespeare, because I'm like, they just, they fucked with the text too much. And there are certainly plays for me, like, I don't know why you would do much to do but nothing if you didn't do the text. Like, it's such a dumb story. What would be the point without Beatrice's, you know, wonderful lines? But Romeo and Juliet seems to be kind of a weird one. And I'm not sure. How it falls. And I'm, I mean, curious to see where, where you guys think about it, because part of what's interesting about it is that nobody's really been faithful to it in like its entire history of production. Mm-hmm. So when Shakespeare wrote Romeo and Juliet, he basically pilfered from the Brooke poem and he kept most things intact, including when Brooke had like a long speech, Shakespeare put a long speech. But he did make certain major changes, like making Mercutio a major character. He compressed the timeline a lot. Pardon? Or Mercutio,
1: as Leonardo DiCaprio calls him.
0: <laughs> uh, uh. <laughs> um, yeah, he compressed the timeline a lot because I think they've been married for like six months before the Tybalt fight happened in the Brooke poem. Um, but Shakespeare made it all happen within four days. And that Tybalt was dead before they even consummated their marriage. And then, of course, there's like Romeo and Juliet ballets and even and throughout the history of the the Romeo and Juliet production, people mess with it a lot. Like Garrick had a version of it where, you know, the lovers get to see each other one last time at the end. Um, and they just, so they slightly changed the ending. And that was done for in the 1800s, I think, for quite some time. Mostly people did. It was like a lot of 40 year olds playing Romeo and Juliet on stage. Like pretty much until 1960, I think it was pretty much like old people playing, you know, the 14 year olds. Because as people like to say that, you know, if once you're old enough to understand how to say the text, you're too old to play it.
1: Horse feathers.
0: So I'm kind of wondering, and where you guys stand on Romeo and Juliet adaptations, and in particular these films, because obviously, I mean, what do you think makes Romeo and Juliet Shakespeare? Is it the order of the scenes, is it the story itself, is it the characters, or is it the dialogue itself, or is it what's contained in, within the dialogue? Thoughts. I don't know that there's like an easy answer to this. I just think it would be interesting to discuss.
2: Yeah, definitely a big question. I I think for me, what I'm drawn to is is the characters and their journey, uh, and the tragedy of of the characters. Something that comes to mind that just actually came to me when I was studying Shakespeare in university a- as an actor, uh, one of the teachers talked about how we never really see a successful marriage in Shakespeare. Um, <laughs> we see people get married, of course, at the end of a comedy as, as a great hopeful thing, but we never see a successful marriage. And I guess, ironically enough, Romeo and Juliet is the testament of that. Their marriage is very unsuccessful because then they die, and, um, it, and before it they can fight, yeah. And uh, what about the make
1: bets though? Oh, well, are you calling that a successful marriage?
0: <laughs> well, like not by the end, <laughs> really. But they have been together for a long time. They were a team.
1: That's. They've been together for a long time, and a successful marriage are very different things.
0: I said they were a team.
1: Ah, uh, Lady Macbeth pushes her husband to commit murder. Yeah. Well, team. I'm not sure we can call that a successful marriage.
2: Well, and I and I I should tread a little bit lightly on this. I I think what my teacher was referring to was just we see Shakespeare comment on marriage in such a way. As in, he doesn't necessarily believe in marriage uh, as a successful, happy thing because he comments on it in a lot of his plays. Because she was just referring to the fact that these, these married couples seem to be kind of, I don't know, uh, not very happy with each other. So that's sort of what I was referring to. But in this, in this case, I'm talking about, yeah, that. Obviously, he's commenting on this marriage as very being, being very unsuccessful because they both die, but or maybe they're successful in their eternal love to each other. I'm not sure, yeah, so for me, I think it's the characters that um make make this play a a Shakespearean play, and also the the poetry and the romantic poetry of the language for me is. Yeah, is central Shakespeare. Something off what Laura said a little bit. Um, particularly
1: what you said about the characters, I think you're absolutely right. It's a little bit it's a bit unusual in that it really is a it's a character driven play rather than you're quite correct, it's a character driven play rather than a language driven play, you know? It's one of the very few plays where I think you can do a genuinely faithful adaptation that's sort of neglectful of the language itself. And that's what I kept thinking as I was watching the Baz Luhrmann version, you know? I kept thinking about Kurt Zell's Macbeth and how much I disliked that performance because I thought it wrecked the language. And yet, I felt that the Lerman version, even though it really, like, the lines were not said with particular, you know, focus or concentration. Even though the line readings weren't very good, I felt that it was faithful to the passion and the emotion of the play. Yeah. yeah. In a way that you couldn't do with many other Shakespeare plays, you know? I, and I think maybe
0: part of that, too, is that it's all rhyming in Romeo and Juliet. It's just like a series of rhymes. And so it sounds kind of hokey if you do actually do the text. Like, it's just, like, it just, it doesn't really sound real in the way that, you know, Hamlet is real. Like, even when he, even when Hamlet has his rhyming couplets now and then, it sounds like somebody talking in a way that Romeo and Juliet sounds much more stilted. I mean, that's maybe not the right word, stilted, but it, it, you can tell that it's art, art, yeah, artificial in a way that you, you I wouldn't say that about, say, Richard II, which is also all in verse.
2: Yeah, I think that's because they're two teenage characters at the forefront, uh, unlike any other play, you know? And I mean, well, I mean, he has a teenage characters as a forefront in other plays, but I mean, I just think we can, we can forgive them on the language because their emotions are so high. I'm just jumping off what Emma said, you know, their emotions are so high. And yeah, so that's where, why we're taken in as an audience.
0: I will have. I do have a counterpoint to that, though, because I, I, I agree with you, but I also disagree with you, huh. because I think, I, I mean, everything you said is true. I agree with. On the other hand, I think a lot of people don't like Romeo and Juliet as a play, and I think that's because they haven't actually seen the text performed or they haven't read it in forever. And I think when you do a production that isn't text-driven, you lose a lot of the really, really, really smart stuff that's going on within the text. So, I mean, one of the things that's really interesting in the text is it's not just about the, like, time and speed, but also how time and speed is different for older people versus younger people. I mean, there's a lot more time spent on the Capulets. I mean, the Montagues are barely in the play, but certainly the Capulets and the Nurse in the text itself than in either of the films. And if you do it properly, you can really make a highlight between... Highlight the differences between the, the children who move to move so quickly and the parents who don't necessarily. Um, and I saw a production of Romeo and Juliet at Cal Shakespeare. Which I thought was just brilliant and completely opened up the text for me in ways that I had was totally unaware of how interesting it was. And one of those ways was that it basically showed like they're in a hurry to marry Paris off. Yeah. Sorry, to marry Juliet off to Paris that you suddenly see the 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 grown-ups acting like children and in so doing the children have bad models and it kind of the parents actually precipitate the rash behavior by behaving rashly themselves in a way that's totally missing from both of these films and indeed from most productions I've seen of the play mm-hmm. the other thing is that it takes place over the course of 4 days and when I saw this performed, like, if you actually do all of the scenes, um, and the art Arden Shakespeare does this quite nicely, is they, like, map out that you have morning, afternoon, evening, night, morning, afternoon, evening, night, morning, afternoon, evening, night. Um, and if you like, and the way they lit it at Cal Shakes was you actually could really see the change in light. And so you really felt the time, like, you could feel the clock ticking because it was bright and then it was darker. And, and it helped that it was outdoor theater. So then when it was night, it was actually, it was really night. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you could really feel the fact that it only took place over four days in a way that I feel is totally missing from the Zeffirelli and is sort of there in the Lerman. And I could go on for with more examples, which maybe I'll do after once you guys have a chance to weigh in. But I think there's a lot of really smart stuff in the text that in some ways gets maybe picked up in some of these adaptations in other ways. But I think it gets lost when people are like, well, it's just the story of Romeo and Juliet and they're these teenagers and and it's so tragic and their families dislike each other that you lose a lot of the other stuff that's within the text and then people are like oh it's that boring play I had to do in grade eight that I now hate which is how I felt about it for 15 years I hate it for different reasons (laughs) (laughs) jumping off
1: of that as both a ballet and an opera fan I've seen adaptations of a bunch of Shakespeare plays that by necessity, the nature of the performance departs significantly from the text. Like the ballet of Romeo and Juliet, obviously, doesn't really involve text work. And I've seen the opera of Macbeth, which is fantastic, and an opera of Othello, which is rather good, and neither of them involve, like, working with Shakespeare's words. And funnily enough, the the two that I found most effective were... The Romeo and Juliet ballet, although it's got some weird choreography, and the opera of Macbeth. And I think that part of the reason both of them work without the text, this is a counterpoint to what Alex is saying about text work, is that both of them attach on the, they don't have the fineness of language that makes Shakespeare, Shakespeare. Oh, but wow. I guess they get what Shakespeare is going for, you know? They also don't have
0: subplots. True. Good point. But so do you consider those, do you do you think of those operas as Shakespeare or do you think of them in the same way as you would think of 10 Things I Hate About You, which for me personally is not Shakespeare? I think of them as... It's an adaptation that's obviously inspired by, but it's not Shakespeare in the way I would say Kenneth Branagh's Much Do, About Nothing is Shakespeare. And even Joss Whedon's Much Do, About Nothing, which I have a lot of issues with, I still think it's pretty much Shakespeare.
1: Sure. I mean, I think of them as adaptations of Shakespeare, but a successful adaptation isn't just taking the plot of something, right? A successful adaptation is a genuine exploration of something that's going on in the text that you can pull out of the words without using the words themselves. One of the most interesting performances I've seen is there was a performance of Cymbeline, which, by the way, is a shitty play. No one, it's it's crazy. A performance of Cymbeline in Japanese with English subtitles by a Japanese theater troupe. And it's like, what you experience as an English speaker is a double translation, right? It's Mm -hmm. Shakespeare translated into Japanese. That's a direct translation for the actors. But then when you read the English subtitles, it's the Japanese text translated back into English. But that still feels like Shakespeare to me, even though it's moved significantly away from the words.
0: Hmm. That's really interesting to me because I, I mean, that's, that, that's where the, where you look, where you think about translation is where I get kind of fuzzy and I don't know what the answer is. And part of that is because I haven't seen, I haven't seen Shakespeare in other languages with English subtitles, so I don't have any experience with that. Um, and I thought it, I I was watching Nicholas Heitner give this really great talk about directing Shakespeare. And one of the things he said that I thought was really interesting was that because they're translating it into, say, like modern-day Japanese, they get to modernize it in the way that we get to modernize Chekhov. That if you did Chekhov in Russia, you might be stuck with, like, you know, the language from when it was written. But if you do Chekhov in English, we're always doing new... There's always being new translations in order to update Chekhov for a modern audience. And we never really talk about that because Chekhov, you know, Russian is not our language. So we just are like, oh, this, this, you know, this adaptation feels really present or, or, you know, like the Medea adaptation was also a new one that they did at the National Theater with um, Helen McRory. And they that felt very modern because it was a modern translation. Whereas we don't, you know, when I think the Oregon Shakespeare Festival is talking about putting on or, or putting it, I don't know if they're putting on productions or they're just putting out like modern translations of Shakespeare, where they want to have like modern text and that, you know, caused a huge uproar um including by like I was scoffing at it among ev- among everybody else about you know do the text do the text but in some ways it's you know we're stuck with Shakespeare because it's our language and it's and Shakespeare is basically the beginning of modern english so even though it's still old it's still ours and so i have a lot more difficulty figuring out what it means to have shakespeare translated and then to lose things like the original Verse or meter, um, which seems so important to me and how I how I think about Shakespeare, whereas I'm much clearer on, to some degree anyway, how everything else is done. Like I don't think of films as a film adaptation necessarily. I think, well, yeah, it's a different medium, but you can still it's either a film of the play or a film adaptation, which is, I like, of course, different from filmed productions. But I don't think of Ray Fines as like taking ridiculous liberties with the text I mean aside from the ones that we complained about in the other episode but I still think of it as like he's doing Coriolanus in a way that I wouldn't say kiss me Kate or West Side Story I don't think that that's you know kiss me Kate is basically the plot of Mm Timmy the Shrew but it's I wouldn't call it Timmy the Shrew I would call it inspired by yeah
1: so I mean I realize we're departing a little bit considerably rather from the initial question but
0: what oh, but do you I th- think we're defining the term, so it's important because that's how we're going to figure out what we think of these.
1: What do you think about the possibility of doing Shakespeare in other languages? Like, do you think if you're trying to do Shakespeare in another language, do you think that fundamentally is no longer Shakespeare? Do you think it's merely an adaptation or an inspiration? I don't have a, a slant here. I'm curious.
2: I think by its very nature, it's going to become an adaptation because the languages won't meet up all the time. You know, it, it's, it's not going to be perfect in any regard. Like, I mean, even the cadence of the way the text is structured will change significantly. So I think by its very nature, it's going to be an adaptation.
0: And I think also, I mean, one of the ways that Shakespeare is different from, say, Chekhov is that Shakespeare didn't write stage directions. The stage directions are built into the text itself and um, something that actors talk about. And I've certainly noticed when I when you read it aloud, it tells you how to say the lines. It tells you where to stop. It tells you how to start. It tells you where you're going to run out of breath because it's written in order to. The way you, the way you read it is like, it's written so that it forces you to physically feel how you're supposed to be feeling and, and say it in a specific way. In a way that, I mean, I obviously haven't read the original Russian, but Chekhov has stage directions. You know, it's more modern. We put stage directions in. If you read Pinter, it's not like, you know, there's, it's too, there's very little text in there to begin with that it's like, you have to, Fig- that you have to figure out how to say it and you have very little words. Whereas Shakespeare is like, I'm giving you no stage directions. I'm giving you a shit ton of text. Now figure out what I meant by this text by actually saying it. Um, and I don't know how, I think you would have, I would think that even if you had a really good adaptation where you sort of preserve, try to preserve some of the, the flow and, I just I I would think it's just kind of impossible to to do it that well that you would basically need a modern Shakespeare to do that because it's so intricate and so detailed um that that seems to me like you would end up with kind of an adaptation but on the other hand you know if you keep all the little scenes in order I mean that's where it becomes interesting is if the scenes are all in order and the characters are as they would be then and maybe you have somebody who's read the original English and can give you information about it. I don't know. And you're then, is, does that then make it actual Shakespeare? Is
1: I don't that know. Necessarily not Shakespeare. Caitlin? Yeah. <laughs> I'm
3: not sure, not sure I agree. Just, and just my experience doing, studying Shakespeare in, in postgrad, grad school, I guess, that I did this amazing class, which was about um, early modern theater in general so it wasn't just Shakespeare but it was also a half English half drama class and there were these two performances that were part of the assignment for the drama students that really affected how I see this whole issue of like translation and adaptation there was this one young woman who did the same speech from the end of The Taming of the Shrew three times Completely different ways, and it sounded like three different speeches. That, in a sense, that she was actually kind of translating it, even though she was saying the same words, that into into three completely different uh, expressions of different feelings, different emotions, and it it of course completely changes the play if you change that last speech of cat. Uh, I always call it cat because of Ten Things I hate About You, and. The other thing that was really interesting that I, um, was another student did I can't remember which speech it was but one of, uh, did a soliloquy but did it once uh, in the original and did it once in Arabic and of course we had no idea really what she was saying in Arabic because none of us spoke it but it was amazing just to watch having already seen the what came before to watch not only what was different because of course Arabic is is spoken with different emphases at different points of words and and their breaths in different places, but also what was the same. So it was like this, even though we couldn't tell what she was saying, we could see the differences and similarities and where the energy in the speech was. And Mm so I don't know, I don't know that I think necessarily that Shakespeare, that something needs to be the same words or, or even the, the words sort of, even the same meaning, even the same energy to be still Shakespeare, just because I think even, even when we're performing the words as they're written, we're all translating in different ways um, mm-hmm. as we go. So yeah, that's, yeah, I think, I think that Shakespeare is going to, the, the Shakespeare part of it is going to actually sit in a different place for different plays, I think. Mm-hmm. So like, yeah, yeah, and I think Romeo and Juliet is, as we were saying earlier, that it's it's been messed with so much. And and um, I think part of it is because it is such a sort of character and theme-driven play that as long as you've got that sense of who the characters are and what they're doing in the play, then it's still going to be Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet.
0: Well, as long as you have maybe like this – Four or five lines that everybody knows, like Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou Romeo? And
3: yeah, <laughs> oh, that reminds me. This is totally in the middle of nowhere, but I just it's. I thought it was hilarious in that moment in the Lumen film when Juliet says, "Wherefore art thou Romeo?" So like, there's no sense that she doesn't know that wherefore is why and not where. But it <laughs> with, with the fact that, that Romeo, it, it is, does kind is of right. seem like she's looking for him. <laughs> Almost, but but also like even if, even even if not like there's this he's he's literally behind her in the shot, and it just made me think of like English panto, and like just wanting the audience to yell out, "He's right behind you," <laughs> which uh, which is hilarious.
0: So, I mean, I think that what you bring out, Caitlin, that it depends on the play. I think I really really agree with that. That to me, I think some plays I just couldn't imagine without doing the text properly, and then other plays, and maybe even, like, I don't, I just, like, don't give a shit about comedy of error, so maybe I wouldn't care if, <laughs> if it was, like, totally modernized, because it's, like, bad to begin with. <laughs> <laughs> M.A. is giving me a major thumbs up as I say this.
1: <laughs> I do hate comedies, as you know, as you are.
3: But- I saw a production of Comedy of Errors at um, my university quite a few years ago that was done Commedia dell'arte style with the masks and, like, the weird like, sort of prosthetic things. But it was also done in classic old-fashioned rural Kiwi uh things. So everyone was wearing gumboots. There was a chorus <laughs> of sheep. At one point someone ran through with a chainsaw. Someone parks, like, an old, like, banged-up Toyota in the middle of the, of the stage, and they all talk with the, like, oh, yeah, she'll be right, mate, accents. And it's it was, it was just beautiful. So it did not matter that the play is not good. It was it was perfect.
0: <laughs> but I, I guess maybe with, like, plays where the lines are really great and they're really memorable, I think it matters more to me. Like, I mean, obviously, if you listen to our – hopefully it won't be four hours by the time it makes it out to people, but if you listen to our four-hour episode of Much Ado About Nothing, Caitlin and I argued strongly against – david and cam that saying the text right matters whereas i I, I
1: could imagine a hamlet in translation right
0: like that would just be deeply
2: strange yeah versus if we don't really care much about cymbeline (laughs) (laughs) being like a japanese version of cymbeline as you said uh you know it's it just depends on the play i think yeah, it, it's it's a, it's a really interesting question because I think obviously around the world there's going to be translations of various plays and some will sit well with you and some probably won't, you know? But then I kind of go, well, would they put a subtitle of the actual English text? That's just a question I have. You know, I, I don't know. Well, you're a playwright, Laura. How would you deal with the translation of one of your plays? Okay, I'll answer that question with with an example of something that I saw. I saw this production also from Japan ironically enough of High Life, I which is a Canadian play, and it was obviously all done in Japanese and it was set in Tokyo, but it was really cool. I love that adaptation because it took that original idea and made it adapted it to a different place altogether. So, I'd probably be all for it. Because it, it brings up so much more creativity than you even originally conceived, you know? So maybe Shakespeare would be all for it. He'd be like, yeah, like all these people are doing my work, you know?
0: I mean, one sort of side question I have to this, which I think is related, is how much does it matter how, how much you're inspired directly from the text? Like, I think there are cuts, like in these Romeo and Juliet movies, there are cuts. And that changes things, but I think one of the things that we were talking about in, especially in Baz Luhrmann's, is that it's really true in a lot of ways to the spirit of the text. Like if you look at Mercutio there, like that's the Mercutio you would get if you looked through the text and figured out what Mer- what what should Mercutio be like. You'd probably end up with something quite like that, and maybe Juliet less. And it, and if you were to you know take some kind of Okay, I'm not going to, I was going to make an eigenvector joke, but you guys won't know what the hell I'm talking about. <laughs> or for the, like the two math nerds listening to this, if you think of like Clara Danes and Olivia Hussey as like eigenvectors of Juliet, that if you took a linear combination of the two, you would eventually get like the authentic, whatever that is, Juliet. And
1: Look, I went to law school, so I wouldn't have to do math. <laughs>
0: Same. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, sometimes it's useful to think in math metaphors for me. (laughs) Um, But on the other hand, I think part of why I had issues with Curzel's Macbeth is because he was like, well, here's the text, and then I'm just going to do the opposite. Like, even, like, you know, like the way that Lady Macbeth and... I don't know, this is complicated, but one of the things that I like to complain about in this, in that annotation is that if you look at the text, Lady Macbeth and Macbeth, they're actually finishing off each other's lines of verse. And so it should be snap, 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 snap. And what Kurzel has done is sort of taken that and sort of not taken that, that in, you get the sense that they share a mind, but they have these really long pauses in between when they're speaking. And so it seems like, to some degree, he took the text and was like, well, this is what I understand from the text. And then to some degree, it was like, he just totally ignored it. And there are some issues like that in, in the Romeo and Juliet films. Like, like with the Queen Mab speech, for example, Romeo actually interrupts Mercutio and is like, you're just full of hot air. And there's when Romeo and Juliet are t- like, Trying to remember. But there's like a lot of parts where there are things where people are finishing off each other's lines of verse. And so it should be really fast. And that certainly in Zeffirelli, there are like big pauses in between them. Less of an issue in Baslerman's because it's, you know, super fast. And but you could read that super fast thing is actually being he looked at the text and he felt because the text really does, it moves, and part of how it moves is because of the verse, that it just kind of goes, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, like it just moves you, moves you forward, and moves you forward, and moves you forward, and the fact that it rhymes pushes that. And so you could perhaps read Baslerman's Choice to have these quick cuts and push you forward as actually, he got that out of the text, and then he turned that into a film. And so I guess, I think to me maybe, where I'm going with this is I think, if you if if your choices that you make that are not, that are subtextual are very clearly from the text then it's kind of shakespeare maybe and if they're not then it's less so i mean i don't know exactly where the line is but laura and connor and i kind of concluded that kirzells macbeth wasn't shakespeare yeah it
2: was more it was more um
0: and inspired by almost
2: because it was more filmic in terms of the shots and the the imagery, rather than them being true to the text.
0: And it wasn't necessarily inspired by the text. Some of those images, some of it was just like out of Kurzel's head.
2: Yeah, exactly.
0: Well, I don't. Know, do you think that? Do you think that the choices that they make in in um, Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet and in Zeffirelli's Romeo and Juliet are things that you could see as coming from the text that then he's translated in some way into film terms, but it's still, it's not just, we're doing the plot, but we're doing the rhythm or we're doing like, we're actually getting in the, the information that Shakespeare gave us within the text itself is information that we have clearly mined. We are, you know, that they, that the screenwriter and the director have clearly mined. They've done their own text work and then they've given the actors perhaps some kind of, Translation, but they've at least like somebody has done text work in there to mine stuff, as opposed to just saying, well, they fall in love, isn't it sweet? And then they kill themselves and it's too bad. I
1: will say I never felt I realized that we haven't dealt aggressively with the fact that the line readings in Lerman are not Shakespearean.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, except for Friar Lawrence. Yes, who's
1: actually like good at his job.
0: He can uh, act everyone under the table. He's so good, and you hear it, and it's like, see, you can make Shakespeare sound modern and understandable. It doesn't have to be stilted like everybody else.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Take <laughs> a um, The one thing I was going to say about the Lerman before we, relatively speaking, phrase the Zeffirelli line readings is I never felt the cuts in the Buzz Lerman version. You know. Like, I knew the cuts were there because we've all studied Romeo and Juliet. Like, we've all Mm -hmm. been there, we've all read the play 11 billion times. More times than we wanted to, at least in my case.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Although I like it now, I didn't like it back then because it was ruined for me, but. Sorry, go ahead.
1: Well, I will say that I still don't like it, but that's partly because of how it's performed, right? It's partly, it's performed as this great romance. And I think that's really only telling half the story.
0: Yes. Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess that's part of my issue with treating these films as Shakespeare, as opposed to as adaptations, because I have seen it performed in ways that does bring out the other nuances that are totally lost in these films, because they make major cuts. They don't deal with the timeline very well. They don't really deal with the images of night and day in the way that, you know, like night is when they can, they have privacy and when they, when they can hide and like there's all kinds of connotations about night and day within the text that's kind of lost, I think, in both of the films. And there's a lot of stuff that, I mean, I've seen really interestingly done in performance where you have different speeds at which the characters talk that like Romeo and Juliet speak really quickly and the older characters speak more slowly and the way that you, the way that they show the contrast between the old and the young has a lot to say about you know why Romeo and Juliet are behaving in the way that they are, both by contextualizing it in their families and how their parents are affecting them, and also by being like we're not just young people. And I think the other thing is that you know they cut Mercutio down quite a lot in the films, and at least he's a he's still very clearly important in. Baslerman's, but the first things that seem to go in these are the a lot of the dialogues with the Capulets a lot of the nurse who is basically like a non-character in the films but is actually quite an interesting character and our buddies over at No Holds Barred Cast um, actually had like the nurse on the top 10 list of female characters to play I can't even remember what they kicked <laughs> off for that I think like one of them kicked off Volumnia for that or it was like something ridiculous like <laughs> yeah we don't have to agree with them but but the point is that there's actually stuff in the text that you know makes makes her an intriguing character that you would never know if you watch these films just like you would never know that there's a lot more going on than just a love story based on how these films are done but i've seen it in in performance and thought well this is fascinating this is there's a lot going on in this play
1: the counterpoint that i would say like look you can cut a lot of important stuff and still have an interesting, genuinely Shakespearean adaptation, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. What is the example that Alex and I return to again and again is we saw a production of, of Hamlet at Stratford this summer that cut a ton of stuff, a ton of stuff that most people would consider like super integral to the play about the political situ- situation in Denmark. And yet it was still an intriguing, you know, fresh, interesting take on Hamlet one of the things I'd say about the cuts to Romeo and Juliet is while the night and day progression is important in the sense of giving you a sense of time, what you want is a sense of time that's compressed, right? That's Mm -hmm. the fundamental reason you have this night and day compression. Yeah. And you can achieve that sense of compression in ways other than that night and day thing. Yeah. So I think if you, If you cut intelligently, right, like if you Mm -hmm. cut in ways that have attention toward what the play is trying to achieve rather than the way in which the play is trying to achieve it, Mm -hmm. you can be faithful to the play while also cutting things that appear significant.
0: I think I sort of agree with that. And sort of, I agree with that. And I think part of my issue with Romeo and Juliet is that I think people just make the same cuts all the time. We have this idea of what the play is, which isn't even necessarily based on what the text actually is. It's based on, you know, what we've seen most commonly done, which is, you know, basically what Zeffirelli did. Because even what Baz Luhrmann does is he just, he steals a ton from Zeffirelli. And a lot of what has been done in production is quite similar is, you know, the focus on the love story above all else. And I think when you look at cuts in other plays, there's a lot more creativity. And then what gets cuts becomes very interesting because of how it focuses things. And the problem is that people don't really look at Romeo and Juliet and think, Oh, I'm going to focus. And part of it is, you know, that there's, there aren't subplots really, in the same way that there aren't subplots in Macbeth. But I think that, you know, there's still, I mean, I don't know, maybe I haven't seen enough Macbeth to have much enough of an opinion about how it's cut, but I think it's just, there isn't much done, whereas I think every time I see a Hamlet and it's cut differently, I think, oh, that's fascinating. And, you know, we were complaining about the Benedict Cumberbatch Hamlet, that part of its problem is they didn't cut, they didn't do interesting cutting, and they didn't cut enough, and so it didn't have a focus. But of course, Hamlet is this big, sprawling play, and Romeo and Juliet is a very taut play. So it makes it harder to have quote interesting cuts. Like you can't cut Romeo and Juliet. So what are you going to cut if you need to cut things is you're going to cut the same things. And then that ends up meaning that our cultural understanding of Romeo and Juliet ends up being this watered down version of Romeo and Juliet. And people don't believe me when I say, actually it's actually quite an interesting play because you know, they see the watered down version and we've, we were all bored by that because we studied it in school and and it is kind of been done over and over and over again. But there's a lot more going on there that keeps getting lost.
2: Or or even what you talked about before, which was they don't play some of the text for what it is. You know, the, the sassiness of Juliet. I, yeah, I agree with you. It is somewhat of a watered down version when you see it on stage or on screen. But... Also sometimes the direction of which the text is actually taken is not the way it should be delivered, you know? And um mm-hmm. that's also a shame in the adaptation. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and I think you're right that Juliet getting watered down is often the first thing to go cuz I remember this like this production that I saw at Cow Shakes that totally changed how I felt about Romeo and Juliet. I just like didn't remember Juliet being so much fun and so funny and so clever. Yeah. And she's, she's- She's basically like the Beatrice of this play and that's pretty high praise but you don't see that on a lot of productions.
1: No.
3: Yeah, usually the problem the biggest problem that I have with the play Romeo and Juliet is Romeo. Uh he <laughs> just me um in the same way that Claudio does in much Do about nothing. It's just that kind yeah. of irritating slightly drippy kind of wet blanket dude uh who's obsessed with the girl. And actually do it, like rewatching both versions this time, uh, actually thinking about that and thinking about Juliet and how she's portrayed. I think it has actually slightly changed to my opinion just because I think, yeah, usually she, she does get so watered down that even you kind of don't even really think about her as a separate character from Romeo. Yeah. And, and so I think I would be really interested to see a production of Romeo and Juliet, whether it's a a play or a film or whatever that takes some real risks with the cutting and, and actually makes it Juliet and Romeo, you know, like you could even change Mm. the title if you wanted to be a little bit pretentious, Um, but uh, make it a, a play about, because it is a play about Juliet, but make it more obvious to an audience who's expecting one thing when they come in, which is the usual standard Romeo and Juliet fair, by sort of really, I don't know how you would do it, but um, really being creative and maybe even slightly restructuring things to make it really Juliet-centric, because I
0: think it could be really interesting. I mean, I think it's kind of Juliet-centric in the text itself. So yeah, I don't know if you'd have, I mean, you'd have to figure out how to make it, you know, two hours or whatever without losing yeah, I guess the, the stuff that, well, I don't know, but maybe that's the thing is you should lose some of the stuff. But it, it's, it's a tough play to cut because it's not like there's a zillion subplots like Hamlet that it really is really quite taut. But I, I mean, I, I, I do agree with you.
3: Mm. Maybe, maybe less cuts and more just doing a, a fiasco Hamlet, but hopefully uh, more <laughs> successfully and moving things around a bit. Maybe could be an interesting way of
0: tackling it. I don't know. I mean, it's kind of interesting that this hasn't really been done on film, but it does get done on stage. Yeah, I've seen it done on stage. Laura's seen it done on stage like that. I don't know if you guys have seen productions that have successfully made it like Juliet centric. I haven't Um, seen productions mostly because I don't like it very much. (laughs) (laughs) Understandable. And I remember when I went to see this production that I really loved, I was like, oh, God, Romeo and Juliet. I was not looking forward to it and I couldn't believe how much I loved it and how intelligent it was.
1: Part of the reason that I find Romeo and Juliet that I don't like it is like in some ways because it's too good, right? Like, part of it is I don't like the lionization of two romantic 14-year-olds getting married in four days. But part of it is that, again, every time I want this to be the time that it's okay, and that only, that pain only works and that hope only works because it's actually such
0: a well done play. I mean, this is one of the things that I think gets lost in both of these films. Is one of the reasons they get married in such a hurry is because they have to keep a secret. Not because, you know, if their families weren't sparring, I'm not sure that they would rush into marriage quite like that. They probably would be like, well, let's hang out a bit, you know, and they would follow the procedures because they could. Um, and I think these. These films really, really downplay the role that their parents have in pushing them into this kind of behavior, and I'm not sure that I don't know that I agree that the play itself lionizes their love because I think it's it's just as making fun of it to to a degree as as Baz Luhrmann's is that it wants you to feel for them, but it also wants you to question what's going on and one of the things that gets lost i think in both films is the sort of meta-theatrical nature to it and you either there are bits and pieces of it but effectively what happens at the very end of the play is they're put up on a stage right and the the prince is like look what you guys did you guys are horrible don't do this again you idiots and you sort of And, and the chorus also appears in multiple times and it's often gets cut in performance because it's just plot summary and doesn't necessarily serve as another purpose. But the purpose that it does serve is it creates this sense of a parable that if this isn't really about lionizing their love, it's like, look at how it's, it's a, it's like a fairy tale. Like this is, this is what happens when people behave, people behave, you know, in silly ways that it creates tragic and other silly behavior and that's built in with the way that there's the prologue and the way that the prince is used and um even you know what they do nicely is they do it nicely in in the Baz Luhrmann one when Mercutio dies he's actually on the stage when he yells a plague on both your houses and you do get Mercutio on stage quite a bit as being like a performer and how that's sort of like a defense mechanism or a way of like getting everyone to like him um, and being the center of attention. And I think generally, and this is generally true, I think, of Shakespeare on film is the meta theater is the first thing that gets lost. And there, there are some things that manage to do it. And I think that there are other things that are gained. And so it's still worthwhile. But maybe it's quite damaging in the case of Romeo and Juliet because then you could end up with this feeling of it lionizing the young lovers because you lose the sort of storybook structure to it.
1: I mean, I certainly feel that that's the flaw with the Zapparelli adaptation. Yeah.
3: Maybe the answer is to just do the whole thing. It like <laughs> ran a Hamlet style for
1: 50
3: million hours. Hopefully, <laughs> 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 mm-hmm. <Probably> not
0: quite. <laughs> Except less boring. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs>
3: like two hours and then just like pause and
0: like wink wink. <laughs> Oh, well, apparently that was a problem, like, even when they started putting it on. Actually, that was one of the things I didn't mention, is there were actually two versions of Romeo and Juliet when it was first written. There was a much-pared-down version, which was the touring version, because I guess around when it was written, the theaters were closed for the play, so then the company was touring to smaller towns. And there's, like, a much-pared-down version that's the touring version, and then there's, like, the longer version, which we effectively use now. Effectively, because obviously... <laughs> These two films are cut cut a lot of stuff.
1: Um, this may be an obvious question, but do we actually have a copy of the pared down version? Do we know what that looks like, or do we just I know mean
0: the, I don't personally, but it, but it, I believe that there is one. That's interesting. Um,
1: it's probably at the Folger Shakespeare Library, which is a paradise.
0: It Might be at the Bodleian too. Hmm. It might be published somewhere. I mean, not the original, but there might be a it might be published somewhere.
1: Let's look into that. I mean, after the podcast is over, because it would be interesting to compare the cuts that people choose to make to the big version versus Mm -hmm. the cuts that Shakespeare chose to make. Right. Yeah. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: So do you do you think that the choice I mean, we may be sort of winding down now, but do you think that the choices that get made in the two films are are really like jumping off from the text? Or do you think that they're. I mean, especially when it comes to the lack of dialogue, or do you think that they're not really based on text work or usually inspired by the text? And does that matter?
1: Well, one of the things that's really interesting to see, particularly in the Lerman version, but also in the Zeffirelli version to a lesser extent, is the room for the director, right? Not just in how the lines are read, but between the lines. And I think it's interesting to see not only what textual cuts the directors made, but what they chose to put in the space between the words themselves. You know? Where the director inserts themselves in creating character using blocking, using sets, you know, using especially
0: music. And... Well, that's part of how you get that sense of doom in the Zeffirelli one, is that that score that just keeps... that sad score that's always playing.
2: Yeah, that that's exactly right, Ma. I think... I think the director the director is as much putting their stamp on their film adaptation as in in how they're using the text. And yeah, I, I just think that that's a really interesting thought because that's what that's the the story that they are mapping out for the audience. And yeah, and I think I think that's as much to do with Shakespeare as it has to do with the individual director. I mean, Yeah.
0: Well, and I mean, maybe this is tougher for Romeo and Juliet just because it's so taught. But I mean, obviously that the director puts a huge stamp on any production of Shakespeare. And that's why Shakespeare is so great, as you can see, 20 completely different Hamlets. And, you know, even these two Romeo and Juliet's they're very similar in certain ways and they're completely different in other ways. But certainly in other in other plays, I think it's a lot easier, like not to keep going back to Hamlet, but. I mean, it's a good example just because in any given sense, there's like five different things going on when you read and analyze the text. And then but you can't do all five at once that putting on a production of Hamlet necessarily means simplifying it and making choices in a way that you don't have that problem when you're reading the text is that you get, you know, 20 nuances. Romeo and Juliet, I don't know that it has. It doesn't have that same kind of rich complexity in part because it just doesn't have as many things going on. it's not it's totter and it it doesn't have a zillion subplots. and so maybe there's i don't know if that means that there's room for less interpretation I mean, I don't really like to think that, but I guess it's just interesting how that then serves for the director because i i I still think that you can read the text and get completely different readings out of it. Um, even if you're working within the text and that just by virtue of your own personal experience that you're going that the director and the, the actors are going to get different things out of the text that you'll even a director can do the same production, you know, 10 times and with different cast will get different things. And, you know, I saw an interview with Peter where He's talking about how he's done as you like it like six times and he still hasn't figured out how to do it and that he came close once and they were great in the preview and then they just lost it and he doesn't know what happened. Um, And he, you know, put it on again recently because he was trying to actually maybe it was Peter Hall, not Peter Brook. Yeah, it was Peter Hall. But anyway, so like, you know, even one director can come up with a lot of different readings. But there's a difference between imposing your reading on the text, which is basically what we complained Lindsay Turner did in Hamlet, and looking at the text and just happening, happening, happening to highlight different nuances.
2: Yeah, but then within their own directorial style, you know, and Yeah, that's it's where it's this interesting marriage between text and director. And I mean, Mm -hmm. I'm just going off of what you're saying, but it's it's an interesting marriage to see what comes out of that. And I mean, you're right. I mean, there's not as much to mine from Romeo and Juliet, but they're still putting their own individual stamp on on what they want to say and how they want to create that landscape of the play and the adaptation, the
0: film adaptation.
1: It really seemed like we all like the Lerman version better than Zeffirelli.
0: Yeah. Yes. But I also think we not would, really. I would say that. words to the text. Well, I think we would also say that we found valuable things in Zeffirelli and that the Lerman version would not be possible without Zeffirelli because he takes a lot from it.
2: That's yeah. a strong point. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It was of its time. It was a, it was a version of its time. And I think he, Baz Lerman, took that version as a form of inspiration as well.
3: And the uh, Zebrali version does have some seriously interesting eyebrows happening, so... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just, like, for some actors, the eyebrows are just doing all the work. Like, I'm pretty sure there's no reason for Michael York to be there except for his ridiculous eyebrows.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. Do we want to do any version of Did They Blink? Because, I mean, it's obvious what happened with I mean. Romeo and Juliet. Look,
1: Romeo and a in a hurricane. I think we both know that. That's mm-hmm. canon.
3: We, Romeo and Makushio totally boinked in lemons at one point. I'm just saying. It.
1: I don't think they need to have actually banged like a-, <laughs> a hurricane. They could just be like, there could have been an understanding between them. Okay. <laughs> I think it's understood that there's a certain eroticism between them. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Whether or not right. that actually involved removal of pants is an entirely different question. <laughs>
0: Mm-hmm. They might have made out. When they were
1: uh, high, as Mercutio seems perpetually to be.
0: Yes. All right. Well, I think we're going to end there. So, um, let's just remind everybody who we are. Um, this is the end of our, uh, discussion on the Romeo and Juliet films by Baz Lerman and Zeffirelli. I'm Alex Heaney. I'm your host. I'm the editor in chief of The Seventh Row. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at B West Sinaas, that's B W E S T C I N E A S T E. And my guests today are Laura.
2: Hi, I'm Laura Ann Harris. I also contribute to Seventh Row as a film critic. And you can find me at www.laura and harris and with an e And Caitlin.
3: I'm Caitlin Merriman. I'm not a film critic. I just generally tweet snark about things. Um, Hence my Twitter handle at Caitlin Snark, C-A-I-T-L-I-N-S-N-A-R-K.
1: And I'm Mary Angela Rowe, editor at large at the seventh row. You can find me on Twitter at LapsedVictorian, L-A-P-S-E-D, Victorian. Hopefully you all can spell that.
0: And you can find us all on Twitter at the 21st folio. That's 21, the number S-T- folio, uh, where I will be retweeting tweets that everybody has been making about the productions that we're watching in preparation for this, and any other related Shakespeare jokes of which there are many.
1: This is, it's, it's too much. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and that's the end of this episode of the 21st Folio. Back next week for a new episode discussing new Shakespeare productions. To keep up with the latest episodes, don't forget to subscribe to the 21st Folio podcast on iTunes. For show notes and more information about the podcast, please visit seventh row.com. That's S E V E N T H row.com. So I have just a couple of end notes and errata for you. Um, The first thing is we talk a little bit in this episode about our episode on Coriolanus. That was actually recorded before we recorded the Romeo and Juliet episode, but has not yet been released. Watch for it. Coming soon, we'll be talking about the Ray Fiennes Coriolanus and the Don Mars production of Coriolanus starring Tom Hiddleston that was directed by Josie Rourke. Um, the thing is I've had some people ask questions about the little comment we made about Leonardo DiCaprio and second head. So second head is a thing that is afflicts, um, men of a certain age where suddenly they find that their skull is widening. Um, and it's basically their head has widened as if to make space for a second alien head to pop through. Um, Leonardo DiCaprio sadly is one of the people who has suffered from this worst, um, but so has David Boreanaz. And you know, if you want, come find us on Twitter and we'll give you a whole long list. But that's what that was all about. it. Um, I would also like to apologize for suggesting that 40 is old. I didn't mean that 40 is old. I meant 40 is too old to play Romeo and Juliet. Not that it is old as like a life state. Um, and um, okay, I've been rethinking my whole eigenvector metaphor. And I think it's I still like using it, but um, I think I think I used it wrong because I thought about it, and I'm not sure that between both Juliet's by Claire Danes and um, Olivia Hussey that we've got like every Juliet characteristic covered, and I'm also not sure that there's no overlap. And of course, eigenvectors are orthogonal, so there can't be overlap, so I'm... Um, going to rephrase my metaphor for like the one or two people listening who might actually get it Um, and say that if you were to make a list of all of the characteristics you would find in Juliet in Shakespeare's text those would be the eigenvectors of Juliet and if you were to take linear combinations of them you would probably you would be able to get both of our Juliet's that we're discussing and probably between the two of them you would cover most of the Juliet characteristics, but I'm not sure all. Oh, and then finally, uh, just a little plug for our friends over at uh, No Holds Bardcast. Cast. Um, They have a really great episode where they talk about actually cutting Shakespeare, and in particular, they're talking about how to cut down um, the balcony scene. It's their 38th episode. Um, It's called Cutting Shakespeare, and you can find it on iTunes or elsewhere on the internet. Um, Again, it's No Holds Bard B-A-R-D. Um, And actually one of their hosts, Dan Belio, will um, be on uh, a future episode when we finally get around to covering Twelfth Night. Um, So yes, tune in on Friday when we'll be having our pilot episode of Sorting Shakespeare, also known as If Shakespeare Characters Went to Hogwarts, Which Houses Would They Live In? I also want to mention our wonderful sound recordist and um, episode editor, cam white who you can find on twitter at jedi dusk j-e-d-i-d-u-s-k he's been doing a wonderful job and we haven't actually said so um on the podcast itself only in the end notes and the show notes so yeah thank you very much to cam white who's been doing a wonderful job um, cleaning up our audio and putting together these episodes you can find him on twitter